What's happening, ladies and gentlemen? This is the Look Back Podcast, a show that explores the intersection between career and culture. Today, we're doing something a little different. Yes, you guessed right. This is not Taylor speaking. You're actually listening to your boy, David. And if you've been following the show, I'm sure you've heard of me. If I had a dollar for every mention, I'm sure I could afford a nice pair of socks. Today, I have the pleasure of helping you all get to know your host, my friend, and as of this past weekend, my fiance, whoop, whoop, Taylor Cirillo. Let's keep it personal. Let's keep it fun. So push those earphones in tight and let's get to it. Taylor, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, David, and for being my host. This is fun. Of course, I'm excited. So why don't we just start from the top? So Taylor, tell us, where where are you from? Well, I am from Harlem, New York. I was raised by a single parent household, my mom. But my grandma was also a second parent to me. She really was my second mom. She passed away last year and... The anniversary of her death was actually July 24th, and it just was a time to reflect and remember all the good times we had. She was such a jokester. You know, she is the person who taught me how to cook, who convinced me that ghosts are real. <laughs> she was an amazing woman, and uh, I hope to have the pleasure of telling the full breadth of her story one day. For sure. I know we would all love to hear that. So you grew up in Harlem. Tell us about the schools you went to and what your education was like. My first school was called Family Academy. If anyone listening went to Family Academy, wow, hit me up. That would be great. Um, but really, when I think about my formative education, it started with a program called Prep for Prep, which take students who are of color and they help them enter into private school. And it really is uh, independent of your social economic status. It just so happened that the majority of students were on the lower income side. Gotcha. Okay. So you're a part of Prep for Prep, which is this incredible program, which transitions you into private school. Tell us what that was like. I went to an all-girls school called Nightingale Bamford. I spoke about it a bit, um, particularly with Sagacy, with Teal. But the homies. I was an athlete. That was my identity in high school. And that was really what shaped me. I played basketball, volleyball, and lacrosse. And I know you joke and you don't think I'm an athlete, but I was hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> I really was. Okay, so in your bio... You say that you've been forcing your friends to talk about culture since you were 13 years old. How did that become your passion? Why? I wouldn't say that at 13, it was my passion. I wasn't, I mean, I was going through the halls saying diversity, 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 but that was a, 
that was due to the circumstance of my environment. Before Nightingale, I was in public school and Family Academy was actually, I wouldn't say diverse, but you know, there were kids, there were black kids, there were Hispanic kids. Um, it felt as if I had the privilege to experience a culture outside of my own within that cohort. At Nightingale, I was one of few for the first time in my life. So it became a mantle and a fight that I inherited. Mm. And I do think that Nightingale was actually, now let me preface this by saying in my experience, I felt that Nightingale was really receptive to having us there, right? I didn't ever feel that I wasn't wanted. But when I look back at the curriculum, when I think back to the fact that the students were responsible for pushing the school to be inclusive, to hire faculty of color, that's when I can see through my adult lens how problematic that situation was. But at the time, I saw it as a free trip to diversity conferences where I got to meet kids like me who were really excited to learn about culture, to help their classmates be aware. And we had this term called leaning into discomfort. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't regret it because it's given me the vocabulary and the tools to have these conversations. And it also made me highly aware that so many people avoid them simply because they're just, they're uncomfortable. And I just enjoyed making my classmates uncomfortable. So you were a popular kid? (laughs) No, I was not at all popular. I mean, my grade had 40 girls. I didn't drink or get invited into parties. I think the first time I drank was senior year. (laughs) Um, I was not popular. I just was loud. And I think I held a presence because I was very unaware of how uncool I was. Does that make sense? Like I was just so oblivious to the fact that I wasn't popular (laughs) and I just talked to anyone I wanted to. Oh, so you're one of those like low key, cool, nerd, cool types. I don't, I, I, I don't even know how to classify myself. I just, yeah, I was just very oblivious to what cool was. You were just a baller. It's okay. Exactly. I have my Nike swoosh headband. Okay. So Taylor was a baller and a culture carrier in high school. Okay. So moving on, I think most of your listeners know you went to Davidson for college. Uh, Tell us a bit more about your personal experience there and what you studied. Well, socially, Davidson was shit. (laughs) But I think I harped on that a lot in previous episodes. So, you know, let's focus on the positive. I was an English major. I loved my professors in that department. They were extremely supportive. And as corny as this sounds, I became an English major because the work didn't feel like homework. I just loved literature. I loved reading. I loved the discussion-based classes. I loved it all. I was very lucky to have professors who helped me understand that I did not need to be worried about what being an English major meant for my career. They made it very clear that I could be anything I wanted with that major. And I was very attracted to that because, you know, I came in pre-med and quickly realized, hmm, not so much, not for me. Uh, but I found my calling, if you will, 
in a club called the Union Board. The Union Board was responsible for throwing the social events on campus. Mm. And that was everything from nights that encouraged students not to drink to concerts. And I started on the union board as our speaker chair. So I would bring in speakers on various topics. I had a small budget and I had to make the most of it. The biggest speaker I brought to campus was Angela Davis. And I'll never forget, I actually had a faculty member. Perhaps she was a staff member, not faculty, but I had a staff member of Davidson ask me who Angela Davis was. And that's when I knew she had to come to this campus because... That's Davidson. People didn't know who Angela Davis was. But I think my proudest moment was bringing ASAP Ferg to campus my senior year. And I know to any listeners who are young, you're like, who? (laughs) But I brought him to campus during his heyday, probably his biggest hit. And that was the first time in my four years that we had a rapper. We usually stuck to country music rock bands, pop. It was seen as risky, to Mm. say the least. So I went through a lot of hoops to bring Ferg. But beyond that, I quickly realized that there was someone on the other end of all my emails who was in charge of booking ASAP Ferg. And I wanted to be that person. So I didn't graduate college with a job because I was determined to work in entertainment. My mom was extremely frustrated with me but I just had it in my heart that this, this is the path for me. And I actually reached out to Prepper Prep because mm-hmm. Prepper Prep doesn't nearly get their students into independent schools. They also help them with college admissions and job recruitment. Mm. So through a Prepper Prep connection, I ended up in the mailroom at CAA. And was that position at CAA everything you imagined? Well, there was a journey, right? So the rite of passage is you start in the mailroom. You're in charge of pushing the mail cart and dropping off everyone's mails, packages. You're in charge of setting up new offices, doing any and every errand imaginable for the agents and the assistants. Whatever is menial enough for an assistant to give you, we were responsible for that. So after a few months, I eventually got on the desk of a music touring agent and everyone told me not to take that job. This woman was notorious Mm -hmm. for being vicious. I mean, I would cry in the bathroom. I was afraid to use the bathroom. I hated my life. I really did. And eventually she left CAA to start her own agency and I made the mistake of following her. But then, you know, an opportunity opened up for her competitor and everyone told me he's so much better than her. Don't you worry. It's going to be a cakewalk. (laughs) But boy, were they wrong. Um, I went to ICM where I worked for another hip hop uh, touring agent. And yeah, I I don't have much to say other than those were some of the darkest times of my professional career. It was a moment where I was experiencing verbal and mental abuse. And that was the environment. There was no one I could turn to to say, hey, this is happening because that was the norm. 
And the fact that I wasn't able to deliver my best work, the fact that I was not able to suck it up was seen as me being incompetent. So you were being blamed for not being able to deal with your abuse. Well said, yes. Because there are people who thrive in those environments. There are people who excel. But I wasn't that person. I don't work well when, yeah, when I'm being screamed at (laughs) 24-7. Understandably so. And... You know, let alone being faulted for abuse, nobody should have to put up with abuse. Uh, there's been an awakening of the consciousness in America around racial justice, but a lot of other problems in society. Do you think that culture of abuse in the agency world will change? I saw an article the other day that WME is now calling their assistants by their name. That was the headline. What did they call them before? Assistant. So all email addresses were, let's say I'm an agent, Cirillo Assist. Cirillo Assist 2. You didn't get your own email address because the likelihood of you leaving that desk in six months in a year were very high. Therefore, you weren't worth creating an email for. Wow. So (laughs) we're starting from the bottom of the barrel, right? My mom said to me when I was at ICM, you would never accept this type of abuse from a boyfriend, from a friend. I don't understand why you are so accepting of it simply because it's your boss. Mm. I don't say this to remove the spotlight from sexual assault and sexual harassment because the spotlight needs to be there and remain there. But there needs to be an awakening of talking about verbal and mental abuse in the workplace. We don't discuss it. If you have a boss calling you a bitch, if you have a boss texting you at 4 a.m. and cursing you out, you're just not good at your job, right? That's not considered abuse. That's not considered harassment. You have a boss throwing files at you. That's not considered harassment. It's Mm -mm. just considered something you need to suck up. So until we have space to talk about those issues in the workplace, until people see mental and verbal abuse as important to discuss, I don't think the culture will ever change. And so you leave this culture behind and you find yourself working in licensing. Can you tell us more about that? About how I ended up in licensing or what licensing is? Tell us all of it. Well, I kind of fell into licensing. I was at a point in my life where due to the past experiences, I didn't really believe in myself. I really began to feel as if I was incompetent, as if I was a failure, as if every all the insults being thrown at me were true. And my lack of success was simply because I wasn't good enough. So instead of jumping into another field, another job, I decided to start temping because I needed to gain my footing. I needed to prove to myself that I was capable. And my current job 
kind of fell in my lap. I knew about licensing because there was a licensing department at CAA, but it wasn't sexy. No Mm -hmm. one wanted to be the licensing assistant. (laughs) No one wanted that. Why? Why would you be the licensing assistant when you can work with movie stars? So I was really adverse to it. I did not think I would stay. I said to myself, this is a stable opportunity to pay my bills. Let's just do it. But for the first time in my life, I had a mentor. I had a woman of color believing in me, giving me assignments that allowed me to prove my skill set, putting me in front of clients and giving me a voice, challenging me. And it was amazing. And I quickly learned that licensing is vast. I work for a character brand. And what we do is we sell our art to companies around the globe who want to use it for promotional or licensing purposes. I guess the difference between promotional and licensing are simply that one is short-term and one is long-term. So when you see a frozen t-shirt at Target, that is licensing. Mm -hmm. When you see frozen and orbit That is a licensing promotion. I didn't know Target had the frozen (laughs) t-shirts. I might have to go pick one up. You're so funny. Um, So those images aren't just put on shirts willy-nilly. Those are deals that have been made. And those are companies who have reached out to Disney and say, hey, we would like the frozen trademark on our clothing. And Disney gets royalties off of each item sold. So primarily, I work on North American deals. And what I've been focusing on in the past years is licensing promotions. So pitching consumer packaged good companies, ice cream companies, pitching them the idea that our brand can highlight their company values mm. and add some pizzazz to their day in and day out project. I love it. I love it. And so pulling on that thread, What would you say the link is between brands and storytelling? You cannot have a brand without a story. If you want to get through the marketing clutter, through every ad that we are bombarded with on TV, on subways, on buses, on our phones, you need a story that is going to captivate your target audience. Mm. Without that, who cares? So on that note... What led you to starting the Look Back podcast and what stories are you looking to tell? My failures led me to start the Look Back. I needed to prove to myself that I could finish something, that I could bring a thought I had in my head that was in my heart to the world. And as scary as it may be, you know, constantly asking yourself, who's going to listen to me? Who cares what I have to say? Who cares about me? (laughs) I just had to push past that noise. I am plagued by negative self-doubt. It stops me in my track. And I knew that the only way I was going to prove those thoughts wrong was if I worked towards this goal every single day and brought my tiny baby to life. So that is the fuel that I run on. Mm. In addition to the fact that I love podcasts, 
One of my favorite podcasts of all time is How I Built This with Guy Raz. But I was so disappointed that all of the voices I was hearing were mostly white men and women. Occasionally, he'd sprinkle in, you know, a black entrepreneur, but that was rare. And I didn't understand that because that's not what the world looks like. I have so many friends. I see so many people accomplishing incredible things in their professional lives every single day. And I think that black people and people of color have a really difficult time celebrating themselves. Mm. So what this show is meant to do is to celebrate us, to inspire us, because the future does not look like how I built this. Yes. The future is going to be filled with black CEOs, with Hispanic founders, with Asian entrepreneurs, and I want to highlight every single one of them. But I also want to tell the story of now. What are they doing to get there? Right. Not what the have journey. they done. Yes, because it's very easy to look back and be proud of what you've done. But it's a lot harder to look back and see how far you've come when you're still working towards your goal. So I want to tell the story of what happened in between those two years mm. to start the journey. Because once we start, we're unstoppable. You're right. Before, before we let you go, what advice do you have for those of us who are in the midst of building our careers and maintaining the culture at the same time? When I wanted to be a part of the entertainment industry. I wanted to do it because I was very tired of seeing how black and brown people were portrayed on TV. But I wanted to do that so that I can create characters or create narratives or tell stories where white people listening would feel comfortable and look at those characters, look, listen to those stories and realize they're just like us. Entertainment can change this world simply because it is a risk-free way of inviting different cultures into your home and learning about them. But nothing I ever did from that mentality was successful because I wasn't creating the work for me. Mm. So the minute I flip that goal on its head and said, wait a minute, I'm not doing this job for anyone else's approval, but my own. I didn't create the look back so that white people can listen and be comfortable with us. I created the look back for us. So every time you go into a professional setting, do your best work. But do not settle for an environment that does not allow you to be authentic. Mm. Being given space doesn't hold much weight if we aren't making space, if we aren't taking up room with mm. who we are. So do not be afraid to take up room. Mm. Because not being who you are is the most draining thing you can do. Preach. So don't be afraid. We are all complicit 
in upholding the hierarchy of whiteness. The minute we let that go as a standard, that's when we'll, that's when we'll find freedom. Wow. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, David. It's been fun hearing this story again. <laughs> I should carry a mic around with me all day, every day. No, I don't. I don't think anyone would enjoy that. Next episode. Next episode. <laughs> Never again. <laughs> but no, Taylor, thank you for having me on this show. Mm -hmm. It's definitely been a pleasure. You know, now I have this mic. I don't know if I'm putting it back down, to uh, be honest. I'm hiding it from you. <laughs> um. But no, this has been a, a great lesson. This has been great insights into the voice behind this production, the story behind this show. Thank you, David. Thank you for continuing to uplift the culture. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm trying. We all are, right? We all are. And to you listening, thank you for joining me for another week of the Look Back podcast. I have an update. I will be changing this show to every other Thursday. Please forgive me. I want to give you guys consistency. And at the moment, until I figure out how to manage this, how to balance my day job, I'm sorry, but it's going to have to be every other Thursday. But that gives you more time to reach out to me, to email, to write in. If you know someone you think would be a wonderful candidate for the look back, feel free to let me know. If you think you'd be a wonderful candidate for the look back, even better. I would love to hear from you. And again, thank you so, so, so much for giving me your time. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, review, and subscribe. Until next time. Bye. One love.